at midnight on the 31st of March, Chapter 2, Section 3. May Warder fought the summer's battles through and kept her heart in bounds that would leap out, seeing the man she loved and her he loved go always hand in hand, forgetting her. By fall, she thought, I am recovering now. This sickness is not fatal. I will live, and likely love some man that will love me. But nothing that she felt supported this. The death of Dick Van Snell meant only that again she knew these two were out alone. She did not know this time would be the last. She put him from her mind as best she could and watched the other single men and boys, knowing that she would marry one of them, or never marry, in their island world. Today she went to Bessie Munns to help with work that Bessie was hard put to do, now growing large and always miserable. She went there every week to help and cheer. She wanted no return, but Robert tried to help her father any way he could. May did the wash as Bessie sat and sewed, making from scraps of cloth she had put by the clothes she needed for the waiting one. They talked of all the news in Saugersville, which, having but itself to talk of, found in every least detail something to tell. They say that Mr. Yule looks poorly now. I haven't seen him much, not going to church. I heard Ed's horse he liked so much is dead, the red, white-footed one he's had for years. And every horse we got is needed bad. There are some colts, but they're no good to work. There'll be a time when most we have are gone before the ones we raise are old enough. May, like her father, looked ahead and planned, but planning was a chancy thing in days when this today might be the end of all. She saw the tears come into Bessie's eyes that mostly nowadays were filled with tears, and shook herself and wrung out all the clothes. We're doing pretty well, we pioneers, surely as well as our great-grandmas did, though it's harder for us knowing how to live another and an easier way. I guess it's all like pioneering, too. The women get the worst, but they're the best and bravest always. You know that now, Bess. So Bessie dried her tears and tried to think of how her great-great-grandmother had come to settle in these parts before the war, and spent the winter in a covered sleigh before their hut was built, and bore her child by its rude hearth, their first established home. The clothes hung out, May said goodbye, and went down street to see if Bert could let her have a spool of thread she needed for a dress. The store was empty, as it often was, no more the going in and coming out. The heavy feet upon the deep-worn sill, the old latch clicking with the earthy hands. The stove was lit, the men still came and sat about its warmth, the counsel of the old, that could not leave their habits if they tried. But now there was no changing to and fro, no trucks that stopped to bring the store more goods, no mailman waited by the daily crowd. Bert stayed there always, habit there again, though few were there to buy and few to sell. A little trade in things some people had and others did not have, butter or eggs, honey and syrup, apples, pears or quince. But of the goods, the irreplaceable goods, division had been made and record taken. Bert counted up his spools and searched the list. Your mother had one black, one white last month. You've right to ha half a dozen more, I see. Three white, three colored. Take your choice here, May. Pretty spools were like a row of flowers. She picked the yellow that she liked so well and saw him write her name. One spool of red. Thought of that old store book father had where every old inhabitant was named and what they bought and when, how much it cost in pounds and pence. So old a book it was that so that you saw them in the vanished store buy hiss and tea and indigo and nails and every other one a gill of rum. 
Thinking of them and what she said to Bess, she filled her lungs with air that seemed to give a strength like theirs to all who still lived here and followed in their ways and fought their fight. Not since that day more sultry in their hearts than in the autumn sunshine by the pool had John and Gertrude met, as though that day that spanned both life and death so close, so strong, that brought their bodies to the burning edge and froze them stiff with horror at the sight of death so weary and intolerant, had showed them both a knowledge that was old within their hearts, but only now made clear, that said to each, look, this is not the one so that they shunned each other, shamed enough that such relief should gather in their hearts. For once Maria found her girl some help. Gert did her chores, with no complaints, and stayed at home until her father said, Now, Gert, your feller ain't been round this way at all. What's come to him? Maybe he's gone away down river like he did that other time. I guess he won't be finding more than he did, and might as well make up his mind to stay. If you mean John, said Gert, who knew quite well all that he meant and more than what he said, He's not my feller, nor intends to be, nor I intend to have him. Maria looked behind Gert's back at Ed and shook her head, so he said nothing but went back to read the Bible, which he read of evenings now, which did not serve as well as papers did for sleeping under, but he found it good and read laboriously the book of Job. Edie Salzenbach knew more than anyone about all business which was not her own and was not prone to keep it to herself. Her house was right across the street from Bert's, her kitchen on the side, where she could see each car and team that stopped and stood and went. She said she knew, and they said she knew, how many hairs there were in every horse's tail that went that way. Whatever facts she had, she did not wait to find them true before repeating them. Or, if she lacked, conjecture gave the rest. And now she said that Gert had jilted John. After the way they carried on, she said, I think it's shame to act the way they did and not get married afterwards for keeps. Embittered by the knowledge that his life was no more private than all other lives that lived so close, so open to the gaze, John suffered half from disappointed love, desire perhaps would be the better word, and half from publicly reviewed chagrin that he must play the part of failure here, when really he was glad and wished to say so. Before, at least, there had been girt for talk, but now his words grew bottled up within until at last, in need, he tried the man whose work he scorned and thought of no account. Beyond the store, an open space of land, a sort of common, gave a pleasant air to those few houses set on either side, their backs against the hills, that were the best, the neatest, most substantial in the town. Edie Salzenbachs, the Kramers, and the Yules, with one or two between not quite so proud. The minister's house faced out on all the rest across the common's end, as though it watched with quiet, shining eyes the secular world, not so much in reproof as kindliness. Its yellow clapboards faded in the sun, its aged roof a soft, declining gray. Descending from his hillside to the town in late November light that shone and paled and left the valley deepening into night, John Herbert thought this is a quiet place. The first time he had thought like that in praise, he who despaired in its monotony. So coming to the doorway in the dusk, he felt already in his heart some hope that life was better than he thought it was, and even if it wasn't, men might bear troubles like his with equanimity. The minister was crack cracking butternuts from last year's crop, well-dried and wrinkled black, the very devil to crack, but paying well with sweet, rich meats, the hammer and the toil. Seeing who came, the reverend pushed away hammer and iron and bowl of nuts and gave his guest a handful of his hard-won prize. 
The two had never met to talk like this. At first they tried each other out to see what thoughts there were behind the wall of words, what title each could give to reason's name. At last John said, Do you know what to think of this our special fate, these seven months of isolation in a world destroyed? Don't tell me God or Providence has willed that this be so, not, nor any other so. What do you really think the answer is? The old man moved his hands and turned them up, his candle shone on weathered, empty palms. You know, there is no answer to this thing except the one that means two things to us. The one you will not have, and I can give no other to your question, as you know, and if I say God in his wisdom made the mystery. And if you say blind fate, playing an aimless game, let fall this trick, why, what's the difference? We're bound to live because some strength within us says we must. It's taking all our time to find out how and keep the breath within us warm. He paused and watched John's face and said again, I see you think there is a difference. I too. I have not always felt as I do now submission to God's will in this his world. Nor can I counsel that you bow your head, for youth must fight. And with its fighting, learn. The younger man said then, I fought so long and learned so little that I'm tired of it. My life was never much of a success, although it looked to be before I found that I must leave it all to go away and spend my days in quiet in the air. But here again I have not made my life what I would have it be. I used to think forever of the city, all it meant, and thought I could do nothing if not there. And when I found not being there had saved the life I valued nowhere else, why then, what had I left? I have been lost and done more than one foolish thing in loneliness. The old man smiled and looked at him and said, But now those things are past? And John said, Yes. And that was all the requiem for Gert. When John went home, and it was late that night, he felt his heart beat lighter in his breast and watched the stars come up behind the hill and thought they looked more kindly on his house that showed a gable end against the sky than they had used to look in nights gone by.